Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we're honored to welcome Aaron Wyth, who is the national director of the Freedom Foundation. The Freedom Foundation seeks to, let me get this right, educate public employees on their rights about whether or not they want to join the union or whether they can opt out of the union. Is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. What we do at the Freedom Foundation, the core of what we do is to advance individual liberty, free enterprise, and limited accountable government. I don't believe in the, what the Freedom Foundation stands for. I don't believe you can achieve any of these goals without removing the influence of government unions from politics. They're the big bad dog. They're the number one contributors to liberal politicians and oppose everything that we as a conservative organization stand for. So how much money did uh, the public employee unions give to Shimia Fagan? <laughs> yeah, Fagan, I, I know, you know, last I checked, it was upward of a million dollars. So I know that at dollars. least. But yeah, though, when you put that much money into people's campaigns, you expect a return on investment. And that's what they're going to get with her. And that's what they've gotten with several of the politicians, Brown, of course, being one of them. Yeah, it's one of those things. And I've I've talked about this is the this incestuous cycle of money where Democratic legislators increase the size and scope of the government, which increases the roles of the unions. The unions then give more money to Democratic candidates, Democratic candidates increase the size and scope of the government, increase voter rolls. And it's just this, this cycle of money. And it has gotten so bad. Yeah. That they give millions of dollars a year to strictly democratic candidates. Yeah. And- you na- you nailed it. That only objective government unions are a private sector business. If you run a private sector business, your goal is to grow revenue. The problem with government unions is that they can only grow revenue by increasing the size of government and getting more people to pay union dues. And they sit at both sides of the bargaining table at that point because they pay for the politicians to go in and do that. And on the other hand, then there's at the other side of the table collectively bargaining uh, for public employees. So they get whatever they want. And ultimately, I believe it will bankrupt this state and ultimately the country if we continue to allow them to. Got it. So I... I feel like I might know the answer to this question already, but here in Oregon, Measure 107 just passed, which limited campaign contributions. Both candidates for Secretary of State were in favor of that measure. They wanted to limit the amount that can be contributed to a to a campaign, uh, except for the fact that Shamia Fagan got all her money from unions. And she says, well, now, wait a minute, because that represents a lot of money from a bunch of different sources, little amounts of money from a lot of different people, which culminates in a lot of money. So that should still be fair game for me to go get. But any Nike or Intel or any kind of uh, contributions of, of sizable quantities from organizations like that, that's going to be a no-no. Is that fair? 
No, it's it's completely ironic that that's what uh, Shamir Fagan and others are pushing for, being that their campaigns are so heavily funded by government unions. These aren't individual people that are giving um, candidates money. Unions are one organization. They extract money from individual members and use that to pursue their own agenda, not necessarily the members. It's not like a trade association or something like that where these things are uh, voluntarily supported and voted upon. Mm-hmm. These people are having these dues extracted from them, and oftentimes they're completely unaware of where those dues are being spent. They believe that they're going towards representation and things that benefit them in their workplace. They're not aware of the vast amounts of money that these unions are spending in politics. So I'm going to change gears here just a little bit. I'm curious to talk a little bit about you. So you're a Corbin grad, yes. similar to me. There's not a whole lot of us out there. You are English? Yes. <laughs> Nick had a comment about that? Yeah. So I actually, I have, I have two questions. You are a, a Brummie. You are from Birmingham. And the first question uh, is, I guess, Aspen Villa or Birmingham City are the two football clubs there. Who, who gets your allegiance? Aston Villa. My granddad played for Aston Villa. Really? Yeah, he scored the winning goal in the Champions League final, the only Champions League that Aston Villa has ever won. Uh, he scored the goal in that game. So my allegiance is to Aston Villa in Birmingham. My team, uh, I'm a Liverpool fan primarily. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and I, this is, uh, James and I get into this argument. The difference between Aston Villa and Birmingham City is akin to the difference between Oregon and Oregon State, where one is a perennially very good team and one is a, hey, we just want an excuse to watch live sports and drink beer. <laughs> And, uh, and that's, I, you know, as a Beaver fan, that's resoundly where I am. Um, but, but the second reason I wanted to bring that up is Birmingham is, uh, is a very industrial, very factory based, very union heavy town with mm-hmm. Cadbury and Range Rover and uh, you know, some of the, some of the different, uh, companies there. So you must have grown up in what was a very heavily blue collar union dominated town. How did you end up? Uh, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic, on the other side of the political divide on that. Well, you've done your research for one. Yes, very blue-collar town, uh, union-heavy town. Um, first of all, let me make a distinction. The unions that you are referring to are private sector unions. Mm-hmm. Private sector unions, I believe they have a place in the world that should exist. And, um, you know, they what they do is they actually believe it's in the benefit of a of themselves for a business to prosper. Because that's the way that these companies can hire more employees. Government unions, the, what they do is they raise taxes in order to, to hire more public employees. So that's the distinction that I would make there. In regards to growing up in Birmingham, yeah, it's a vastly blue-collar town. I grew up as a blue-collar kid and I moved to America, went to Corbin University, realized after moving here that America, even liberal states like Oregon, this is still the land of opportunity. But you have these unions going after everything that I just came from in England. And I don't want my kids to grow up in the same environment that I did. I want them to be able to prosper. I want them to be able to achieve what truly is the American dream. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to stand back and be the one to let unions take that away. So that's what motivates me to do what we do at the Freedom Foundation. One of the things that I think is interesting about the 
conversation about taxation and socialism and, you know, U.S. versus Europe, because Europe in general is much more socialist, much more liberal with their taxes and policies. And you'll get some of these liberals here in Oregon and people that I talk to and they're like, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in Sweden or Denmark where you just get free everything? And yeah, tax rates are 75 percent, but, you know, you get free stuff. So it makes it all well and good and everybody's happy and blah, blah, blah. They don't those countries contribute hardly anything to the world stage. I mean, where is all of the innovation taking place? The United States, Silicon Valley, and I would say probably China. I would say those are the two places where, and China's kind of an odd example because they're culturally, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a little bit different. But like when you have a Western democracy, when you do those, when you have those 75, 80% tax brackets, there's no incentive to take a risk and go start a business and do something crazy because the government's if you if you make it big if you hit that lottery ticket government's just going to take it all away and so what you end up with is not necessarily stag- stagnation but what you have is you don't have any innovation there's no incentive to innovate brain drain Bla- brain drain yeah and so uh, you look at somebody like Elon Musk who is an immigrant you know dude wasn't born here i don't know where he's from but he wasn't i should have re- researched that before we got on the air but um he's not from here you know he came here because of the opportunity and because of our system of government that allows him to become a billionaire and so this conversation that I have with liberals of, oh, should should billionaires be allowed to exist? Absolutely. Because that's how we move forward as a society. So there you go. There's my soapbox on <laughs> Yeah, why, why why would you why would you stop somebody from being able to achieve everything that they want to be able to achieve? You know, these billionaires, what people what liberals fail to mention is that the jobs that they provide for people. Those jobs wouldn't exist mm-hmm. if we weren't in a place like the United States of America where you can actually go and achieve something. I I lived it. I breathed it for those liberals that think Sweden and these other countries are the model. Hey, they're open. Go move there. <laughs> <laughs> well, not right now. Coronavirus kind of has everybody. So I, <laughs> uh, at least somewhat germane to that point, and I might have told the story on this uh, podcast before, I, which listeners, I apologize. I can also ask if anybody's watched Chernobyl again. I have a tendency to do that too. <laughs> Um, but I, uh, I, I had stayed in Austria for a couple of weeks and my friend's husband, I, I was staying with uh, some of my friends and he is a, he's getting a PhD in economics and he's also a self-described socialist as, you know, he's Austria, very liberal, you know, whatever it's, he's young, whatever. And he said, this is the great thing. He said, yeah, we pay all these taxes, but poor people have, they get like 800 or a thousand euro a month. They could, they have enough to live and to eat and to put a roof over their head. We have all these great, there's a light rail service. There's all these public parks or whatever. And I said, yeah, those, those things are all great. And it's nice when you're paying your taxes, you can actually see the benefits to it. Uh, where are, where are the businesses? Where are the billionaires? And he said, uh, so that's the thing. He said, Austria has one billionaire. It's the guy that invented Red Bull, and he straight up said, "Everybody else, if you are of that intelligence and of that drive to, you know, start up, a, you know, something like Facebook or whatever, you just go to America." And the only reason that something like Austria can exist with the taxes that they've got is because there already is an America where the best and the brightest can flee to. Yeah, it's and one thing you said there is poor people have the ability to get this and get this and get that. Uh, wouldn't we like a place where these people can actually get themselves out of poverty, which is mm-hmm. what America enables you to be able to do? I believe that anybody mm-hmm. that lives here can work hard and achieve what they want to be able to achieve. I mean, we look at poverty in America and you look at the homeless situation in Portland, for example, which is horrible. I, I shouldn't call it a homeless problem. Frankly, it's a drug problem. But my point is, 
you know, I, I drove here and I saw a homeless guy putting stuff into a car. You know, homeless people in England, which is where I came from, they don't have cars. Cars would be a dream. <laughs> you know, I saw a, a guy a few months ago on the side of a road begging for money and he, he had an iPhone. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So did you, kind of going back to your personal story, did you move here to go to Corbin? Was that the, the, or what drove you to Oregon? So I played basketball in England. And when you play basketball in England, there's like 12 other guys that play. So you get to the top <laughs> level pretty quick. Um, no, actually, basketball is growing in England. Um, anyway, so I played over there and I got to pretty much the highest level you can get to as a very young person, but realized, okay, if this is going to be it for me, then I want to do something more. And America, you know, basketball is huge over here. Mm -hmm. I realized, well, I could probably go there and get an education uh, for free and play the sport that I love and uh, come back and play professional basketball afterwards. So I went and moved to Cleveland, Ohio, to a prep school over there called Spire Institute. Hmm. Uh, had a great time. We played basketball all day, every day. Just loved it. And then uh, got recruited by Corbin University to play basketball over here. Uh, moved out here, played for three years, just loved it. Um, and nice. ultimately did not remain playing basketball, but uh, got out other plans for me. And that's what ended me up at the Freedom Foundation. Cool. I'll, t I'll tell you one other story, actually. I did. It, I started at the Freedom, Freedom Foundation as an intern. And <laughs> I was the guy going door to door to in-home care providers in Oregon and Washington State, telling them that they could opt out of their unions. And that's what really put me on fire for what we do. It's because I was going to the homes of these people that were subsidized by Medicaid dollars to take care of a disabled loved one or an elderly relative or something like that. SEIU, the biggest union in Oregon, decided that they were going to unionize all of these people and take an average of $420 a year from them. And most of them didn't know about it. It took us to go to their doors and tell them that they can leave their unions for them to actually get out. And it just put me on fire that these these unions were taking money from these people that oftentimes were struggling to pay groceries. Yeah. My wife's family has an in-home care facility. They have a couple people that live with them and they continue to get, so they, they aren't unionized, but they have get, they get all the mailers, they get all the please join the union type of, type of materials. And yeah, it's the same thing. They're like, we don't have a ton of money anyway. The last thing I need is to give more money to the government. So uh, yeah, very interesting. Well, and it's funny. So my wife is, uh, is a teacher and she belongs to, you know, OEA and she's actually the union rep for her school. And I like, yeah, so she's so Madeline, whenever you listen to this, you're going to love this one. Um, <laughs> God bless. And so we at post Janice, which I, I, I'd love to talk about Janice in a second, but post Janice. We started getting mailers from, I honestly, probably you, uh, you know, a lot of different groups that were just saying like, hey, you know, by the way, this is what you're paying. This is what you can do now that this Supreme Court is like, you can get out. And she was, she's very, you know, she's happy to be a part of it. She's happy to feel like she's, you know, part of a team. She's happy to feel like they're all, you know, kind of like working collectively together against, I, I shouldn't say against, but like, uh, in maybe in consort with PPS and then against them when PPS does something kind of stupid, which is frankly pretty frequently from what I kind of understand. Um, but she, she likes kind of that team aspect. And 
I love the idea that it's an option. I love the idea that if that's really something that she wants to do and she wants to spend her money on and she sees value and that's great. But if, I mean, if you just said the number was $420, 400 some odd dollars, if I don't feel like I'm getting $400 worth of value out of that, why on God's green earth would I ever submit to that? As a, as a conservative, I always feel like you should never be forced or prohibited from joining any institution, any group of people. Like that should always be an option. That should never be required of you. Yeah, and it it is an option. Teachers in this state, they actually pay on average between $800 and $1,100 a year in union dues. And this is the way that it should be. The private sector should take care of this in that people should be able to optionally choose whether to join or not join a union. The problem is, Janice just happened just over two years ago, people aren't aware of their rights. And the they're automatically enrolled in the union now. So it's our job to go and inform and educate them that they can actually uh, go out and leave their unions. And that's what we exist to do. When we speak to people face-to-face, 40% of those people will choose to leave the unions on the spot. And the primary reason is because they don't see the value uh, in what they're getting. So let's back up just a little bit. Can we do just a brief introduction of what Janus is? I know we're all familiar with it, but it's essentially the Supreme Court decision that allowed public employees. Prior to Janus, if you were a public employee, you were required to join the union. Is that correct? You're automatically enrolled. There was no option. Exactly. Yeah. You you had the choice actually to leave the union, but you still had to pay fees. So it wasn't really like, <laughs> it wasn't a true option. And then I now post Janice, you if you're like my wife and you feel that there's value out of it. And I, you know, we've had this discussion. I don't think there's eight hundred dollars worth of value out of that. But, you know, what do I know? I just host a podcast. Uh, but if you if you want, you can stay in there. You can keep paying your dues. You can, you know, get get all your you know, whatever OEA magazines or flyers stuff that they send out. But now if you do not want to take part in that, if you want to keep your own money, you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Janice was decided by the US Supreme Court two years ago and the basis of the claims uh, were bought from a guy named Mark Janice. Uh, basically, he said, hey, I want to work as a public employee, but I don't want to belong, not only belong to a union, I don't want to have to be forced to pay these union dues. And the US Supreme Court overturned over a 40 year precedent uh, to allow him and everybody else in the country to be able to do that. As I mentioned, now the biggest challenge is we have to educate all these people that they can leave their unions. And as I mentioned, when you do that, most of them or almost most of them will choose to go out and leave their unions. Right. So prior to Janice, anybody who had been signed up for the union is still a member, still paying dues. Nobody, nobody just like canceled all this and made it opt in. Now it's opt out. And so you guys are trying to educate people. Yeah, exactly. And actually, the law of the land is that if you become a public employee today, you have to affirmatively give consent for a union to take union dues from you. So now the burden is on unions to convince people to sign up if they become a newly employed public employee today. And that's the way it should be, because you should have to solicit your services as a private business. And I measured... I measure, you know, these trade associations and that type of stuff, not only by the benefits that they provide, but how easily it is to get out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you belong to a bad gym if you're signed up for one year <laughs> annually. But, and, and unions, they've figured out schemes in which they force people to remain a part of the union. So if uh, someone becomes a teacher today and they sign a union membership form, not really knowing what it is, and then a month later we go and speak with them at their doors. So they receive a 
piece of mail from us and want to leave the union, they won't let them opt out until a 10 or 15 day window in the year next year. Uh, and it's based upon whenever they sign this membership card. Mm. Well, I unfortunately we're not on YouTube, so we don't our listeners can't see. But I've got Corona weight. I've never belonged to any gym, so I, I can't necessarily <laughs> uh, understand where you're coming from with that. But I, I feel like that's a that's a pretty apt analogy, honestly, because the, if you are, it should be just as simple as you know you tick a box or what you know. I, I've changed car insurance companies you can change cell phone plan you know whatever this that and the other thing your cable and it's just like okay you pick up the phone and it takes 20 minutes and okay here we go and this it's you're talking about six or eight or 12 months before you can actually get out and get your own money back yeah and they won't tell you exactly when you can leave either so Mm. we're in the process we have 10 attorneys on staff and we sue unions we have over 65 cases against government unions today a lot of them are based on this exact issue someone wants to opt out of their union they want to stop paying union dues but unions won't let them based on these windows i believe they're completely illegal uh janice was very clear that you have to give affirmative consent and you know, a constitutional right is a constitutional right 365 days of the year, hmm. not when a union says that it is a constitutional right. Hmm. So we need to hold them accountable to that. So what are the d- unions doing to push back on you guys? Are they doing anything? Are they just kind of, um, do they do they have anything to, to do that post Janus? Yeah, they, when you're effective about, uh, in battling government unions, they'll throw the kitchen sink at you. And they've done everything from... Uh, filing frivolous lawsuits against us. Um, they personally attack me, our other executive staff and board of directors. Uh, they've mailed my neighbors homes telling them that I'm a racist and a bigot and what other, whatever other labels they want to try and stick on conservatives nowadays. Um, we had a bullet fired through our window at the, at our office oh two months ago. Wow. Yeah, uh, we get it all, but our staff are mostly young people. They're, I call them freedom fighters, and they're motivated by this. Um, we're not going to back down from government unions because of their intimidation. And I tell people, hey, if we weren't effective, why are they going to these lengths to try and stop us? So I measure it in – I say it's a measurement of effectiveness. So I I would have assumed that post-Janus, unions – public sector unions would have – I mean, kind of, kind of like what you're describing, you know, had an all out effort to, to really retain their membership and to really go after both the, the politicians and the think tanks like you guys that are trying to, for lack of a better term, end their way of life, stop the gravy train. Uh, have you seen a, a decline in either the dollars flowing into the unions or like membership numbers, or have they actually, you know, kind of kept it up and they're still kind of in this dead cat bounce before things really start going downhill? There have been huge membership losses and huge revenue losses to these government unions. And for the listeners who don't know the Freedom Foundation, we're a national organization. One of our, the second state that we ever opened in was Oregon. We have a really effective operation here. And Oregon is actually the smallest state that we operate in. So when we talk about the scale of our campaign, it's the biggest in Oregon. There's 160,000 public employees that we target, and we've been able to really effectively help them opt out. So state employees, for example, we've helped over a third of state employees leave the SEIU, and we've helped significant portions of other uh, public employees to opt out of their unions. Unions spent less in 2020 than they have in 2018 and 2016 uh, in the last couple of years because 
of their revenue losses, which is great because what it means is public employees have that money back in their pockets and out of this union's agenda. And my hope is that one day they do turn into uh, an organization that doesn't spend that money on politics. Rather, they use that money to benefit their members. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing huge losses uh, in the union's political spending, and I believe it's good news for people. 160,000 public employees in the state of Oregon. There's only about 3 million people in Oregon. That's 5% of the population of Oregon is a public employee. Yeah, it's, it's 160,000 that we target. So it may be more. We don't really contact police officers or firefighters or sure. anything like that. We're talking about primarily teachers, state workers, county and city employees, those types of people that make up that, uh, that portion. But yeah, it's a huge number. And the reason it's so high is because public employees have been able to grow the size of government for so long in this state. So I have a... I want to play devil's advocate a little bit just for the sake of conversation. If I were to talk to a union rep, they would probably say that the the union dues that they collect from their members are separate from the political action dollars that they give to candidates. Uh, so what what is your argument against that, that these are separate pools of money, that it's completely voluntary to give to the public action or the uh, political action arm of the unions? One thing that you said that is true is they do have political action committees and they are voluntarily voluntarily funded. So if you're a public employee, you can choose to give money to your union's political action committee. That is on top of union dues that uh, are used to give to candidates, initiatives and other type stuff. Unions got smart a few years ago and they figured, okay, if we, SEIU, I always use them because they're the biggest union, give money, direct, big money directly to candidates will be exposed for it. They do still give money to candidates straight out of dues dollars. That's not a secret. It's on Orstar. You can go and look it up. But what, what else they did is they created uh, Our Oregon, which is, I consider it a political action committee. We're currently in litigation with them to claim that they're a political action committee. But they're a 501c4, and unions give millions of dollars to them every single year to go out, knock doors for candidates, do mailers and try and get their candidates elected into office. Gosh, I hate all these political. It's our Oregon, defend Oregon, something, thousand something, friends of Oregon, thousand friends of Oregon. There's a lot. Yeah, there's just so. I mean, you want to talk about dark money in Oregon politics? I mean, this is where it's all anything like <laughs> word Oregon, and that's probably <laughs> probably where your dark money's coming from. I'd be curious on something that you had just mentioned. And I've now lost my train of thought because I got all excited talking about the the word Oregon. We could come up with our own like little spin the wheel and come up with your own pack. Well, so here's I think going back to your difference between state employee unions and uh, private sector unions, I would be much more supportive of even public employee unions if they got out of politics, if they <clears throat> excuse me, if they used their influence to benefit their employees in ways other than just giving straight to democratic candidates. And I think it's, it's, it's on them. It is their fault. Like when you are an organization with millions and millions of dollars and you give it exclusively to one party, you can't really complain when the other party makes you out to be the enemy. Like you, you are the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. They, they need to operate like any other private sector business or trade association or private sector union does and offer them benefits that outweigh the cost of membership. That's the way any private sector uh, association should work. And that's what I would advocate that they do do. Ultimately, they won't do that. 
They're the big political dog in Oregon. They're not keen to give away their power. So we, I see our role as the Freedom Foundation in taking away that power. Uh, so I'd be curious for your thoughts. We are we now have Secretary of State elect Shamia Fagan here in the state, and we that is the case. She's won that election because all the way I guess about a year ago there was a uh, a vote to a minor change in a PERS bill that went through the the Oregon State Legislature, and there were a couple of people, and specifically two people who were kind of thinking about running for Secretary of State who would have been Democrats, but who would have been fine at the job. Uh, Katie, Katie McLeod Skinner, or Jamie McLeod Skinner, uh, and Mark Hass. And the, the union's preferred candidate was Jennifer Williamson, who got caught with her hand in the cookie jar and was using her campaign funds to travel to like Thailand or something like that. Uh, from here in this district. Former representative from District 36, which is what I was, this is one of the reasons I ran for this district was because she had vacated it to run for Secretary of State. It was an empty seat. For the record, did you go to Thailand with any of your campaign funds? I did not. All right. If I had the money to go to Thailand with campaign funds, that. (laughs) Just kidding. Hopefully you would have gotten more than 15% of the vote if if you had Thailand money. But, so the the union's preferred candidate had to back out of the race and they were scrambling to find somebody to jump in. Shamia Fagan, who voted the quote unquote right way on that bill was now, ju- now jumped in and she had huge amounts of money coming her way from two sources or three sources or something like that eked out a win against Mark Hess. And now she's secretary of state elect. Yeah. So the thing about the PUS deal that is kind of under the radar is the Democrats that voted for that bill uh, were controlled by SEIU, the state's largest mm-hmm. union. They were told to vote that way. And this isn't out in the public because it's almost like uh, the newspapers and stuff have tried to draw a wedge between unions and candidates that voted against this. But Melissa Arunga basically told them, who's the executive director of SEIU, that they could vote for the bill because state employees were going to get a 15% increase in their wages Therefore, SEIU was going to make more money the, the following year. So that's the backdoor deal that was done there. Um, but you're right. AFSCME, which is the one of the other state's largest unions, they're the ones that were primarily bankrolling Shamir Fagan along with the Oregon Education, Oregon Education Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the ones that put up big money to get her in office. And yeah, they're going to get everything they want out of her, I believe. She's a total union tool, and she will remain that way, in fact, even more so. I think you, you mentioned it, but I think it's worth repeating that this Measure 107 that passed is going to limit camp contributions to Republicans because typically big money that comes to Republicans is from wealthy individuals or corporations, and it will do nothing to the Democrats because all their big money comes from the unions. And so what 107 did was it allowed the legislature to make rules that will limit campaign finance in Oregon. Right now, there are no limits. You can give whatever you want to any candidate. And so it was 107 didn't specify what those limits are. It allowed the legislature to go make a rule. And so in 2021, the next legislative session, you can bet that the legislature is going to take advantage of that. They're going to put in place a rule. And I'll bet you a dollar that that whatever, the, whatever limit they put into place will allow public unions to collect money from many different sources and call that instead of a 50,000 or a million dollar check to Shmia Fagan. Now it's a thousand, $1,000 donations to Shmia Fagan. And it's, they're going to continue with their big money campaigns and it's going to cut Republicans off at the knees. And this is the type of bad behavior that unions are 
that unions are the bad guy. They are, they are not for campaign finance reform. They are for cutting the knees out of their opponents. Let let me frame it to you a different way. Isn't it ironic that uh, campaign finance reform is being pushed after uh, one of the biggest U.S. Supreme Court decisions that's hamstringing government unions. <laughs> they are, they're losing their power. They're losing their revenue. That's why they want campaign finance reform is because they're not going to be able to fund these campaigns at the level that they were previously. So why not now make sure that nobody can fu- uh, fund these campaigns at the level that they were? That's their agenda. That's their initiative. Uh, they're cutting their political budgets whereas other organizations and individuals will not. That's how they're going to try and level the playing field. So I, to make a point that will ruffle the feathers of some of our listeners, we get, we get all kinds of fun, fun letters or whatever. There are good Democrats. There are good Democrats who no, are. No, no. <laughs> we'll see our Facebook comments. Just, yeah, people are going to say, just oh, get out of here. But there are, there are people who are, they're Democrats because they care about the environment or the LGBT community or I, you know, whatever your reason is. But there are good Democrats who really want to do, you know, serve their constituents and serve the state of Oregon. Do you believe that we will start getting more good Democrats, for lack of a better term, to run for some of these seats? I like Mark Hass just ran for secretary of state and came this close to to winning that race. There are uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of folks who didn't vote that way, the quote unquote right way on the PERS bill. And unions got upset about that. But if their membership is declining, if they're in political influence vis-a-vis um dollars is declining do you think there will will get to a point where we can have more good democrats get elected who are not beholden to ask may and the seiu yeah that's that's the point that you made is if they're not beholden to unions then they're not going to be beholden to their agenda their agenda is to raise taxes and grow government and basically take away from individual liberties and then they have this whole social agenda now that they've come up with like defund the police is part of their mm-hmm. agenda and uh you know the list goes on but if you have candidates, Democrats even, that are running for office and they're not beholden to these unions, they're not beholden to that agenda. So they can make decisions that actually uh, represent the people that are voting for them and the people that are funding them that are not going to be government unions. So, yes, I believe that will happen. I hope it happens. We are a nonpartisan organization. I don't. I just don't want people to be beholden to these government unions. Mm-hmm. So Lisa Reynolds, who was my opponent in District 36, was also not the union candidate for this for this district, and uh, she's agreed to come on the podcast. So I won't talk, uh, <laughs> won't say anything bad about her, but <laughs> not that I would. But what, when she and I met in private, one of the things we talked about was good governance and about the waste and abuse that's going on in the state, because we have one of the largest budgets per capita of any state in the country, and yet our services are. Not towards the, the bottom. toward the bottom. Yeah, exactly. So what's going on is we're spending all this money on things that that don't matter. And so one of the questions I hope to ask her in the next one is is some of these good governance questions because she I don't know if she made made up with the unions, but she was they they put out a big um, no fake Democrats uh, <laughs> campaign against her in the primary, and so they rubbed her really the wrong way in the primary. So yeah, I think that a union-controlled Democrat is not going to be interested in 
good governance, any kind of good governance fixing yeah. any of the problems with spending in our state. But someone like Dr. Reynolds, I think, has that opportunity to go in as a Democrat. And, you know, she's going to be against us on a lot of policies. But at the same time, like, I'm I'm happy to support somebody who is going to try and fix some of this waste that's going on in our state. Because that's just tax dollars down the drain. So Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. One of the one of the primary measurements for how a government takes care of its uh, citizens, I believe, is by uh, education, how we look after our kids. And we have one of the worst graduation rates mm-hmm. in the country, and yet we have some of the uh, most taxes per capita. And that, for me, just tells you that we have so much waste going on in government. And my opinion is primarily that it's going towards public employees that – um, are not performing at the level that they should be. And those are the types of employees that government unions are protecting. If you can eliminate government unions, then you can have public employees that actually go towards benefiting society. You can have great teachers, those that aren't being, um, those that aren't bad teachers that are being protected by the unions. You have anecdotally, I've heard anecdotally some statements of employ, of public employees that have one job to do a day it takes them 10 minutes and then they sit around playing on the computer the rest of the day and it's so difficult to fire people they are controlled they are protected by the unions that these and it's it's not hurting anyone except the taxpayer and so this, this is where i I'm just in my own mind imagine where this money's going is full-time salaries for something that probably doesn't need a full-time salary which I that sounds like a great gig to be quite honest. But I, I the other thing that came to mind is uh, a couple months ago I was sitting getting a beer with my wife who is a teacher who is uh, OEA, and I pulled up on my phone there was a, an Oregonian article or something and it talked about how the OEA had uh, uncovered allegations of uh, a teacher or vice principal or something like that in some some school district somewhere here in the state of being abusive or something like that, and they they worked to cover that up. Which is, you know, of course, induce like an, oh, my God, like what's going on from from my wife, who is a supporter of OEA, but stuff like that, where it's like, to your point that there's clearly bad people in these jobs, clearly unqualified people. And rather than working to exercise that out of the, you know, the OEA membership as a whole. This, you know, it's, hey, this, this person is one of us. They're drawing a salary. You know, we need, we need to protect and defend them. And it's like, that's clearly the well, wrong mindset to have. I, I would, I would push back a little bit on that. I think that that is the purpose. The purpose of a union, among other things, is to act kind of like a defense attorney. Like that's, that's what they do. And so what it's, it's their job to defend the indefensible, I would say. And I, it, but we need more incentive on the other side to kick those people out and and I, I, there's a role to you know to defend some of these cases i'm like like aclu will take some of these cases against like you know nambla or something like just like clearly awful people but it's like you have the right to a defense sure but i think there's a difference between somebody being accused of something and having the trial out in the open and there being whispers of an accusation you find out it's true and you actively work to cover it up oh okay, yeah. i think those are two different things yeah valid uh, what you're referring to is a teacher that was basically abusing kids and he was the unions negotiated as part of the contract that if you go to another school, your um, your file is sealed to the new mm. school. That's what they negotiated. So this guy went around various different schools abusing kids, and none of the new schools would know who they mm. were hiring. 
That was the big problem, and that's what the union negotiated. They have a financial incentive to keep bad employees working for the government. And when you're in schools, that can have horrible consequences for the kids. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that we're so motivated to do what we do as well. That's another reason that a lot of the good teachers that we see are seeing this and are opting out of their unions is because they know lousy teachers that should be fired, that Mm. um, are abusing kids, but you can't fire them. Yeah, and so a strong union then has much stronger bargaining power when they go into those things. And yeah, that that is that is a line that is not good for the public. And this is this is kind of another interesting thing that I've been thinking about is the public employees should be on the same team as the public. You know, that is their entire purpose in life is to serve the public, to provide a service that is greater than the cost of their salary. And when the public employees are their interests are not aligned with the interests of the public, it's a problem. And when the public employee unions and their interests are not aligned with the public, the whole reason they exist is to serve the public. Their priorities should always be aligned with the public. Well, and I, and I, if, if both my wife and my mother-in-law are teachers, elementary school teachers here in Portland. So if they've made it to this point without divorcing me, <laughs> uh, more power to them. But I, like, I will say that there are a ton of good teachers. There are a ton of very committed, very dedicated, very uh, in, heavily invested in the, the kids that they serve getting the best education possible and the best experience possible. And I, I mean, I know that because I'm married to one of them. I go to staff parties, you know, and like, there's a ton of good people, but it's, it's stories like what we had just talked about that ruins the reputation of, of the industry as a whole that casts doubt. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times Madeline, she, you know, gets emails from parents like, I don't know if you're doing this right. I, I, I wish you would do this a little bit because people feel comfortable undermining her job as a professional. I, nobody's parents email us in our jobs as professionals. And they're like, I don't, you know, little Johnny or whatever. And it's just like, no, get out of here. Like uh, my wife's like, I'm doing, I'm doing my job. This is what I'm being paid to do. And I, you know, went and got a graduate degree and I'm very good at it. And the, the industry as a whole gets, under undermined undermound i don't know if there's we're learning we're doing vocab today on rational republican but i, I it's it's such a problem when stories like that happen and it's it's such a a massive disservice for the public good that they are trying to do that the good teachers don't have a way uh, uh, like an exit mechanism until you get rid of the bad teachers yeah and I, thank you for bringing that up because most public employees i believe are good people they do serve the public um they're great at their jobs and those are most of the people frankly that we interact with every day at the freedom foundation the problem is these bad actors that the unions are protecting and that's why i believe so many public employees are opting out of their unions is because they see this firsthand and my wife's a teacher as well Mm. um she's been a teacher for a few years now loves what she does loves the kids exists to serve the public but you know me with obviously she's biased because of because of my job but she comes home with horror stories about what the unions are doing and uh, what they're trying to do and fortunately she's uh been able to, in a private capacity, tell uh, other public employees about their rights and about what the Freedom Foundation yeah. does. Yeah, hey, cool. Good for her. Well, we are just about out of time. So, Andrew, one of the, or Aaron, gosh, why do I keep calling you Andrew? Um, one of the things we like to do at the end of our podcast is, is ask the question, who is your favorite Republican? Yeah, so that's a tough question. I think when guys that I know 
um, one of my favorites is, I guess, retired now, but Mike Huckabee. Um, he's a very genuine guy. He believes everything that he does. Uh, he's a God fearing man. And, um, you know, he got to the upper echelons of his career. He was, uh, one of the top candidates in 2008 for running, uh, in running for president. And he kept his beliefs and, uh, he's a salt of the earth guy. And, um, yeah, he's, he's probably one of my favorites. Locally, I got, I love Mike Nearman is a senior fellow at the Freedom Foundation. He's awesome. Uh, Bill Post really, again, genuine people are what get me going when you if you're not someone that's involved in politics and you just look at politicians you think that they're in it for their own interests and uh, i think most of them are but there's a select few and that's on both sides by the way there's a select few that are doing it for the right reasons and those that i mentioned definitely are bill post friend of the pod we've had an episode with him the next time you see governor huckabee you let him know about rational republican we'll get him on too (laughs) but uh i'll let him know i'll let him know (laughs) i uh so I do another podcast with Alan Alley, who former candidate for governor and, you know, pretty big deal here, former ORP chair. And he's got um, Mitt Romney's phone number. And I was like, so, Alan, <laughs> you want to you want to make a phone call for me? And he he just he said no. I f- wait, you're called the rational Republican or the rational rhino? <laughs> <laughs> we have been called rhinos by I probably 80 percent of the times we're in, you know, any of those Facebook groups. We're, we're we are not like somewhat <laughs> rhino. Yeah. Anyway, that about does it for the podcast. So, hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, for coming down to Portland and talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, Listeners, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.